be a wonderful opportunity for us just to, uh, in the midst of all the food preparation, to, uh, as a church, consider exactly what it is we're doing and, and giving thanks. Um, but, it, you know, as I look at that this morning and, and to know, how is it we give thanks? Um, we're glad to have Mr. JT with us after several, uh, well, years uh, in his care of his wife. And uh, when, when you have a funeral the day before, how do you give thanks? Uh, when there is some of you, I know, that are dealing with uh, ongoing illness of which you're not really sure how to take care of, that is crippling, how do you give thanks? When financially there's a lot of things at stake, and you're not quite sure what the future will hold, how do you give thanks? Uh, when your own life looks like it may be short how do you give thanks when people are going against you and opposition is strong in your life how do you give thanks and i would share with you there's so much to give thanks for in all of those circumstances and all of these situations and in colossians chapter 1 verse 9 through 14 we're going to focus on this prayer that Paul prays for people he's not yet met. We uh, kind of introduced this in maybe two minutes last Sunday, uh, how to pray for believers in Belarus and the work that they're doing. Uh, and so I'm going to combine a couple messages, one text uh, this morning uh, in, in Colossians 1, verse 9 through 14, uh, and how to pray for people. Uh, this morning, because of our timing, we're going to focus specifically on verses 12 through 14 on what to give thanks for. And so I'm going to ask that as we read this, let's stand uh, in recognition of the authority of God's word in our own life. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. When we looked at this passage before, we learned how the gospel grows, how the gospel grows within our own heart, changing us, how it grows outside of us. Uh, impacting uh, the world around us and how the gospel grows through us individually. God wants to use you. And this was happening in Colossae. Paul was hearing about it, how the gospel was working through them. And so he found it necessary to pray for them. A lot of times we pray for people who are, who are walking away from God. But interesting that Paul finds people walking with God and it compels them to pray for them. That God will keep on working through them. And so we can learn from 
Paul's example here. And so let's see exactly what does he pray for. Uh, we get the, the, the character of his prayer, the stuff of his prayer, uh, really in verse 9. What does he pray for? He does not cease praying, which is general, and then more specific, does not cease asking for one simple thing, and that is that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. To be filled with the will of God is to be controlled by God's will. I remember my grandfather, uh, we, we would always get together with him, and every time we would get together as a family, it would never fail that before we leave, he would pray for us. And we'd all hold hands, and my granddad would pray a long time, because he would, that's just how he was, but then he would pray for every single person in the family every time we got together. And as a six-year-old, uh, I found that to be a little obnoxious as a six-year-old, because I was always looking to go elsewhere and do elsewhere. But you know, one thing I've always remembered in all those prayers, he always prayed that I would know God's will. He always prayed that. God, help Jared to understand God's will and to know his will. I always thought, well, what's so great about God's will? What's the big deal? Why should we pray about that? As I went to college and trying to make a decision about college, it was starting to hit me. Because I wanted to make good decisions. I wanted to do things that I knew would, would be used by God and to bear fruit. And the big struggle in my life then was, how do I know God's will? And I would ask the leaders around me. I said, how do I know God's will? And what I really wanted to know was, God, can you tell me which school to go to? That's what I wanted to know. Which school should I go? And the answer they'd give me were things like, well, to seek God's will is to have all your life in submission to God. I didn't want that. I just want to know where to go to school. And here's the lesson. You can't get one without the other. You cannot know God's direction in life apart from God's will filling you. That you submit to all of God's direction in my life. And so what I found was that this pressing need in life about which school I should go to was instead pressing me to submit all of my life to God. And I found that all those leaders I talked to were exactly right. And if in my mind I'm saying, I'm not going to submit to God, and at the same time, God, will you just tell me which school to go to, which job to do, uh, which city to live, which person to marry, and all these other questions that come to our mind? God's not going to work that way. He is seeking us to be filled with his will and so paul prays that we be filled with the knowledge of his will and so what this is is to say i'm going to be dominated by god's will more than anything else and the question of my heart is what does god say what does he want as a church that's our question what does god say what does his word say let's operate that way it's why you know you come across the stories like paul and silas he gets beat up thrown in a dark dungeon that's uh just a damp stinky place and He sings praises to God. Does Paul know something that the other prisoners don't know? It's kind of like when uh, when Stephen is proclaiming God's word and he gets beat up and he's getting stoned. They're throwing stones at him because they want to kill him. And in the midst of that, Stephen says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Does Stephen know something that we do not 
It's kind of like uh, when Barnabas, he has, has uh, land and he sees need in the church. And so he sells uh, his land and uses all of that money to give to the church for people in need. And we say, Barnabas, do you know something that we don't? And the answer is yes. It is that they are dominated by God's will. To say that you're filled with something is to say you're controlled by it. So, so if you say, I am filled with fear, <laughs> all my decisions are being controlled by this emotion of fear. If we're saying that we're filled with anxiety, we are controlled by anxious thoughts, all right? Uh, if we're filled with foolhardiness, all right, we're, we're making crazy decisions, all right? And so what he's praying for is that as a church, as a people, we be filled by God's will. The question is, what does God want? And so, what's the purpose of that? That's what he's praying for. He's praying unceasing. Without fail, he lifts them up in prayer. How should we pray? Well, what we need to be praying is, God, let me know your will. Let me be controlled by what you want. Here's what I found that we tend to do. We often want to pray, oh Lord, show me your will. So that I can carefully consider it to see if it fits into my plans. That's not the point of the prayer. It's not to say, you know, uh, let me know your will that I can consider it just in case nothing better comes up on the scene. I found that happens with some folks. Uh, 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 as sometimes it's a tendency with the younger sort. They say, well, when is it? What time is that? All right, I'll consider it. What they really mean is, I'll keep that as a plan unless something better comes up than it's plan B or plan C. And I'll let you know the day of. <laughs> and so there's this, this reluctance to say, no, I'm going, okay, yeah, I'll be there two weeks from now. No, it's like, well, if nothing better comes up. The will of God, to be filled with the will of God, to say, it's your will. Not if something better comes up. So what's the purpose of that? Well, He's, the substance of the prayer is verse 9. The purpose of it is verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. To say that we want to know God's will, to do God's will, because it glorifies Him. To, to see a Paul and Silas singing songs when they're beat up, it glorifies God to say that our satisfaction is knowing God's will, not whether or not our physical condition and our freedom is just right. It is for Stephen to glorify God when people are stoning him to say, you know, it's not the approval of men. They can kill me, but I love God. And I'm not dictated by vengeance. I can forgive. It glorifies God. It's when Barnabas sells his money and uses that money to give to the church to say, this land is not my identity. This, this plan, this money is not my identity. God is my satisfaction. I give it uh, to him. And so that glorifies God it is a manner worthy of the Lord. Do you know that Apple, the company, puts as much attention in the packaging of their product as they do the device itself? They have a whole office set aside, offices set aside for this one purpose, to, to incite a certain emotion, a certain feeling when you get an Apple package. Because they want to preserve the name of Apple to associate the Apple logo, the Apple name with a certain feeling. And so Amazon and 
uh, FedEx and all of the, the delivering are starting to work overtime now with packaging. And mind, do you know what Amazon calls their warehouses? Fulfillment centers. <laughs> Fulfillment centers. And, and so I happened to see an Apple uh, package come in this past week. And, I, and knowing this, I'll check this out. And so the, the box is just neat. I mean, when you open and close an apple, I mean, you can, you can hear the air sucking, just being pushed out because it's such a tight fit. You know, and it's like, oh. That's, that's, that's the desired feeling for apple. They want there to be this response of, oh, this is nice. That's apple. That's a, that's a technological company. They, they care about the packaging. We are likened into jars of clay, vessels, carrying the riches of the gospel, the glory of God in us. We should care about how we walk. We are showing the manner of the gospel, the manner of God's will. We are to declare... Who sent us? We don't go about it haphazard. Matter. And a matter. Please, so what's the key thing? Know God's will. Know God's will. Don't let the packaging be colored with greed, with lust, be colored with selfishness. Let it be colored with the grace of God and His love. And so that's the idea, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So what's the results? Let's pray for that. Pray for yourself. Pray for each other that we walk in a way, man, pleasing the Lord. And that's flowing out of understanding and being filled with God's will. So that's, that's the, uh, the result of that. So are uh, the, uh, the purpose of it. Now, what are the results? Well, he, he starts listing out. Bearing fruit in every good word. In, in every good work. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, how do we know God? Do we know God by diligent study of the Word of God? Yes and no. It is a tool. But you cannot know God unless God chooses for Himself to be known by you. How can I say that? Well, notice verse 9. It says that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. That's passive. In other words, someone's doing it to you. You can't do it to yourself. God is doing it. It's passive. We're on the receiving end. And for us to be on the receiving end, the, the result of that is that we may know, have an increasing knowledge of God. That only happens if God fills us with his understanding of his will. You cannot know God Unless God chooses to reveal himself to you. It's passive. Sometimes we get a little heady and say, I want to know God. And that's right. That's a good desire. But understand that if you start doing that by your own self-efforts and you're not praying for God to reveal himself to you, you are walking down a, a building that you yourself are building and not God. And it will not take you to knowing who God is. You know why it's so important? When you sense conviction in your life, 
You feel bad about sin? You feel guilty? You know why that's so crucial? Because it is at that moment God is speaking to you. And he's saying, I want you to know me. This sin is in the way. I want you to confess it. I want you to repent. I want you to give it to me so that you can know me. Conviction is God's touching point, his invitation at that moment for you to know God. And for us to say, I don't like this feeling. I want it to go away. And so let me just ignore it. And I'll come to God on my own terms. You are deceiving yourself. You can't do that. That only happens when God speaks to your heart and convicts you of your sin. Do you understand this? To be filled with the knowledge of God's will is God's activity. The the fruit of it, the results of it, is that you have a fruitful life and that you increase in the knowledge of God. The third result is that you are strengthened with power according to His glorious might. For all endurance... And patience with joy. Giving thanks. So the third result is that there's this power of God. This resurrection power. What does the power of God look like in your life? And it looks like enduring with joy. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Of, of, of it's not necessarily uh, uh, you know, waving a hanky and someone getting healed. All right? uh, the resurrection of power of God is not this waving of your hands and everyone falling down in a certain section. Right? That's not what Scripture teaches as, as the end result of the power of God. It is instead in change of your heart. A willingness, an ability, a strength, a power to endure difficult things with joy. Interesting. Jesus could heal Malchus's ear. Remember the, the fellow that on the night of Garden of Gethsemane, Peter goes a little crazy and, and tries to kill people and instead cut his ear off. Jesus just was able to To heal that ear. Just like that. But what about Peter's vengeful heart? God could make water spring out of a rock. But could he heal Moses' temper? God could rescue Jonah through a fish. But could he cure his racist heart? The same miracle that helped David defeat Goliath helped David wait on the Lord concerning Nabal's foolishness and not strike out in anger. God could send fire upon Carmel, but could he cure Elijah's depression? The same power that produced the earthquake in the Philippian jail is the same power that prompted Paul and Silas to sing. Jesus rises from the dead, but Thomas still doubts. You see, the greatest miracles aren't just these outward signs of ears being healed and fire coming down on Mount Carmel and a fish swallowing a person. These aren't the greatest miracles. The greatest miracles are the ones that happen when God changes your heart. For Peter, not to act out in vengeance, but one day to say, You can crucify me. These are the miracles of a heart. 
It is the power of God. And it is just as miraculous when a person turns away from being impatient, angry, and turning into a patient, compassionate person. That is a miracle when that happens. And so the resurrection power of God is to produce patience with joy. Now, verse 12. This is the fourth result. Of understanding the will of God so that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord produces this this uh, growing uh, power in our life produces this increasing knowledge, increases bearing fruit. But you notice what it says, verse 12, it's an increasing giving thanks to the Father. We're going to see in Colossians, everywhere where we talk about walking in Christ, which I, I think is a, another way of saying being filled with the Spirit of God, you're going to see in every one of those six occasions in Colossians where it makes mention of this and associates it with giving thanks. Being filled with the Spirit of God is a thankful life. So, verse 12. What do we give thanks for? Now we're on today's sermon. Okay? All that was last week's sermon. This is today's sermon. Verse 12. What do we give thanks for? We direct our thanks to God the Father through Christ. So he says, give thanks to the Father. Why? Verse 1. He has qualified you. He's qualified you. Qualified you what? Well, to share in the inheritance of salvation, of the, of the saints of the light. He has qualified us for salvation. Uh, I'm not a, a big golf player. Um, I've played golf. And that's the difference. I'm not a golf player. I've played golf. And, and, and now I've come to the conviction that from now on, if I'm going to play golf, I'm going to play what's called best ball golf or captain's choice. Which is meaning... I don't go at it solo anymore. I'm with the team. Because here's what I found. It doesn't really matter who I get matched up with. There's someone better than me on that team. It doesn't matter. They're going to be better than me. And that's a good thing. I found that when I play by myself, I lose a lot of balls. I get a lot of exercise. uh, All the swinging and all the walking. um, But I also take large chunks of my time. And I hadn't done that probably uh, much since the third child's been born. Um, but best ball is wonderful. I get teamed up with someone. I look at this hole and I'm thinking, no way. No way I'm getting it anywhere close to that. But I'll try anyway. What's really scary is when we'll have four people and three of us all miff the ball. I mean, it's in the woods. It's shanked. It's dribbled up to the ladies' tee. I mean, it's just, you know... And so we're looking at one person, no pressure, and they hit this selling straight shot right to the tee. I think, wow. Not only on that first one, but we actually get it in the hole and par under par, which is the golf course saying, you're good. But I walk away with that score, and I can say, we're good. We're par, we're under par, we're good. But everyone on that team knows I'm not good. But someone on the team is good. And if he's not good, maybe someone else will be good. And I just hope that maybe I have a shot that contributes at some point. Here's what we find in Scripture. Uh, that, that one good golf player may qualify me to be par or under par. Jesus qualifies us for salvation. So what's implied in that is that there's some specific character quality that's required. 
for salvation. What is the specific character qualities required for salvation? Well, consider Psalm 24, verse 3 and 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. I read that and I know in my heart, I do not qualify. I cannot ascend up into his holy hill. I do not have a pure heart. I do not have clean hands. I, I do not refrain from lifting up my soul to what's false. I do swear deceitfully. I am not qualified. We read the Ten Commandments. Have no other God before me. Make no graven image. Do not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And, and going on and, and honoring the Sabbath day. And, and remembering your father and mother. And honoring your father and mother. And, and do not kill. And do not steal. And do not lie uh, against one another. Do not lie falsely against one another. And, and do not covet. And I think, you know what? In each one of these, I do not qualify. And all it takes is one of them. I do not Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what, let's just all sum it up. Let's love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. And I do not qualify. I do not love God with all my heart. I do not love my neighbor. Now, if he said, love yourself above all those, I might have a shot. If he said, covet freely. I would have a shot. But that is not who God is. And I do not qualify. I, I lose my ball every time. I miss it. Jesus comes to the tee. And he lives a straight shot. And he exceeds the law. He, he fulfills the law. He satisfies it. It's the, the hole in one on every single shot. And then he says, here's my scorecard. It's now your scorecard. I'm qualified. I'm qualified. He qualifies me to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what do I thank God for? I give thanks to the Father because it doesn't matter if I'm dealing with cancer. It looks like it's going to take my life if my children are. If, if my job is, is losing, I'm going to lose my house. If I, if I see this, I still have something to thank God for. God has qualified me to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That phrase to share in the inheritance of the saints of light is kind of an Old Testament imagery of, of going and crossing Jordan River and, and going to the land that God had promised. Canaan land. This is, was the inheritance. Canaan land is an image for us. Not of heaven. It is an image of us of walking in God's victory in our life today. Filled with the battles like they did with Jericho. But it is an image of us walking with the joy of the Lord in our life, understanding and being filled with God's will, it is the image of bearing fruit around the world to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. But it's not just walking in this world, but it is when this life ends. We inherit what belongs to the saints. And we're saints because God has qualified us through Jesus Christ. 
Romans 4, verse 1 and 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. It doesn't matter all the good things that might be done in your life. It, you never get past the fact that God qualified you through Jesus Christ. Riches, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou art my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou alone, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Jesus is my inheritance. So what else do we thank God for? Well, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Delivered us from the domain of darkness. What is that? That is the land, that is the heart of any person who does not have Jesus as Savior and Lord. If you do not have Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, then we are born into this domain. And the only way we get out of it is if God births himself in our heart and life. The life of God. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. So you can feel that, the effect of that. Third, we see this. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we've, we've left a dark place, self-centered, self-destructive, eternally separate from God. And now he's taken us, delivered us. This has his military terminology, delivered us, rescued. And now has placed us, not in no man's land, but transferred us in a beloved kingdom. Because it's of his son. I remember what that was like growing up here in Wake County. Uh, transferring was a normal thing uh, in school. Just districts change as they are prone to do. They have for a long time. And I remember one day I went to a, a school bus headed to Northridge. And the next day, living in North Raleigh, I jumped on the school bus. And it took me about 45 minutes an hour to get over to Vena Wilbur, not over on this side. And there I continued for the next two years. I was transferred. It definitely has changes in your life of where you're going. And so it, it impacts your future, impacts your presence. And so when he says you're transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, I'm going to assure you that has difference in your life, where you're going. And then fourth, what else do we thank God for? We, we, we thank God uh, that we've are, uh, been qualified. We thank God that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness. We thank God we've been transferred in His Son to His beloved Son's kingdom. And then verse 14, in whom, Jesus, He's talking about, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We looked at this a few weeks ago in Colossians 3.17 when it talks about giving thanks uh, to God through Jesus Christ and the necessity of, of giving thanks through Jesus Christ because if we do not have Jesus Christ, then the good things of our life go to waste we don't have jesus christ and we said that if you don't have jesus all these good things in life love family friends good fruit good food good weather good enjoyment pleasurable activities uh the stuff of life these things that are good if you do not have jesus christ they just rise up and condemn us and the good things turn to evil because they condemn us but if you do have Jesus Christ, the bad things of this life, 
the oppression, the inequity, the diseases, the, uh, the injustices that happen in this world, the natural disasters that happen in this world. If you have Jesus Christ, these things, by God's mercy, His power and His grace, become good things. But the key is Jesus Christ. Because if we don't have Jesus, we're not redeemed. We're wasted. It's the image of being bought from a slave market. And so if you're not bought back, you're doomed to go to slavery. That's where you're going. Interesting enough, I, uh, the Mayflower, we've, we talk about thank, and Thanksgiving and the first of, of uh, the ship coming over and, um, and, and the Mayflower compact. But we don't realize that in just a few decades... Some of those same individuals were sending another ship out, exporting Native Americans to be slaves. We don't think about that, of, of where we're going to just, and you read about this, and you're trying to figure out where does this ship go, and they're trying to go to the Caribbean to send these Native Americans that were involved in the in King Philip's War. Uh, uh, and they're trying to send them out to go elsewhere. And, and Jamaica, the Caribbean doesn't receive them because they're not really interested in slaves that are rebellious. And and we don't know where they end up. They're just lost in history. They may have ended up in Africa. We, well, there's no record. They're just lost. Do you understand that apart from Jesus Christ, we are on a ship and it's just going to be lost? The good, the bad, it's all lost. Jesus comes in and he redeems us and says what will be lost now is bought back to make an eternal difference. And so the days that you spend, the little decisions of our life, and we ask, well, what good are these things? I'm going to tell you that if in Jesus Christ, these little decisions have eternal significance. But if you do not have Jesus Christ, all the little decisions of life, whether you clean a house, or whether you say hey to a friend, or whether you go to work at a certain time, all these little decisions, apart from Jesus Christ, are just utterly lost. Not to be redeemed, not to have value in your life. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's a, a an author that I've read. Uh, read the book. Many of you uh, might have read in school or otherwise called Night uh, by Eli Weitzel. Um, he was uh, a boy in Eastern Europe during uh, World War II uh, and was taken to the prison of war camps of um, the area. He writes at the end of his book. He says, I remained in Buchenwald until April 11th. I shall not describe my life during that period. It no longer mattered. Since my father's death, nothing mattered to me anymore. I was transferred to the children's block where there were 600 of us. The front was coming closer. I spent my days in total idleness with only one desire, to eat. I no longer thought of my father or my mother. From time to time, I would dream, but only about soup, an extra ration of soup. On April 5th, the wheel of history turned. It was late afternoon. We were standing inside the block waiting for an SS to come and count us. He was late. Such lateness was unprecedented in the history of Buchenwald. Something must have happened. Two hours later, the loudspeakers transmitted an order from the, command, the camp commandant. All Jews were together in the uh, apple, apple plots. This was the end. Hitler was about to keep his promise. The children of our block did as ordered. There was no choice. Gustav made it clear with his club. But on our way, we met some prisoners who whispered to us, 
go back to your block. The Germans plan to shoot you. Go back and don't move. We returned to the block. On our way there, we learned that the underground resistance of the camp had made the decision not to abandon the Jews and to prevent their liquidation. It was getting late, and the confusion was great. Callous Jews had been passing as non-Jews. They decided that a general roll call would take place the next day. Everybody would have to be present. The roll call took place. The Lager Commandant announced that the Buchenwald camp would be liquidated. Ten blocks of inmates would be evacuated every day. From that moment on, there was no further distribution of bread and soup, and the evacuation began. Every day, a few thousand inmates passed the camp's gate and did not return. On April 10th, there were still some 20,000 prisoners in the camp, among them a few hundred children. It was decided to evacuate all of us at once, by evening. Afterward, they would blow up the camp. And so we were headed into the huge apple plots in ranks of five, waiting for the gate to open. Suddenly, the sirens began to scream, alert. We went back to the blocks. It was too late to evacuate us that evening. The evacuation was postponed to the next day. Hunger was tormenting us. We had not eaten for nearly six days except for a few stalks of grass and some potato peels found on the grounds in the kitchen. At 10 o'clock in the morning, the SS took positions throughout the camp and began to herd the last of us toward uh, the apple plots. The resistance movement decided at that point to act. Our men appeared from everywhere, burst of gunshots, grenades exploding. We, the children, remained flat on the floor of the block. The battle did not last long. Around noon, everything was calm again. The SS had fled and the resistance had taken charge of the camp. At 6 o'clock that afternoon, the first American tank stood at the gates of Buchenwald. Our first act as free men was to throw ourselves onto the provisions. That's all we thought about. No thought of revenge or of parents, only of bread. And even when we were no longer hungry, not one of us thought of revenge. Three days after the liberation of Buchenwald, I became very ill, some form of poisoning. I was transferred to the hospital. Spent two weeks there between life and death. One day, I was able to get up. I decided to look at myself in the mirror on the opposite wall. I had not seen myself since the ghetto. From the depths of the mirror, a corpse was contemplating me. The look in his eyes as he gazed at me had never left me. If we could see what sin does to us. Sin was the origin of those prisoner war camps. It was the strength of the prison war camps, sin. We see it in its extremity there. But it is no less fatal in your own heart and life. If you could see how God sees sin in your life. If you could look into the mirror... And see it from God's perspective, what we call little personality quirks, idiosyncrasies, things we've inherited. God sees it as sin, as a corpse. And unless God intervenes, you are left to be that corpse in the domain of darkness. But praise God, when Jesus lived righteousness, 
died the death of your sin on the cross and rose again on the third day. It was if God's tanks came into your camp and says, if you will just believe this, if you will just trust in me, if you will follow me, if you will be filled with my will, there is deliverance from the domain of darkness. And there is a land that is sweet, that is love, that is peace, that is holy, that is joy. It is the land of my kingdom, the kingdom of my beloved son. And I will transfer you there. And you will be living in this land for a while. But understand all the while you are in the kingdom of my beloved son. I've qualified you for this. I'm delivering you for this. I'm redeeming you for this. No prisoner of war, once being delivered and released, says to their rescuer, please, let me live back in the land of darkness. When God works in your heart and life, one of the signs of God's deliverance is there is an abiding joy in your life that you can find in Christ, but there is also a holy desire to live with Him, to know His will, and to not go back to the domain of darkness. And no matter what you go through, you have something to thank God for. And so why don't you pray that? Paul prayed it for people he never met before. Certainly we can pray for ourselves. We pray it for others. Why don't we close by reading our Bibles? Starting with verse 9. I'm just going to lead us in a prayer. Reading verse 9 through verse 14. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for someone else. And if you find there's resistance in your heart for praying for one of these things, that's sin. You need to confess it and repent. Just bow in prayer.